Welcome to our podcast series, Nadnex Activism in the Borderlands. Uh, this series puts a spotlight on the advocacy work of Latinx activists at the intersection of faith and the borderlands. Today, I am very pleased to have with us Zaida Livier. She is the executive director of People's Defense Initiative. She's a Mexican-born human rights activist, writer, storyteller, and abolitionist. Grew up on the south side of Tucson, Zaida, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start off asking you about your border crossing experience. It's one of my favorite stories. Um, my border crossing happened in the early 90s. Um, but just for some pretext to that, you know, my, my family, um, my brother and I were born in Querétaro. So we were growing up. Querétaro, Querétaro is about an hour north of Mexico City, so far from here. But like many Mexican families, we had family that kind of spanned the entire, you know, area of Mexico up into the United States. So we had a tia that lived here who had been born in LA, um, a nana that was from Imuri, Sonora. My mom had been born in Magdalena, Sonora. So we had a tia, my mom's sister, I lived here in Tucson for, for many years um, and had just started a family here. So we, my brother and my mom and I have been crossing the border easily. I think we had a visa at some point in time, you know, the border was just different in the, in the 80s. Um, and, but this time is different. Um, I don't know the exact details of this time, but when we tried to cross the, the agents would not let my mom get we had a family emergency. My tia's husband had been killed. My mom was trying to get to her. We were trying to get to family for this funeral. And um, so we were stuck, we couldn't get past. And uh, my mom hired, you know, I remember very vividly um, standing by the, the border watching the wall with my mom and whatever coyote she had. Uh, hired and coyotes, what we call folks who help people cross the border. Um, and, it, you know, we'd watch and we'd watch. And, and so I have these very clear, terrifying memories of going under the wall, right? Again, it, the militarization was slightly different, less than it is now. There are holes under, then we go, there's places where you go over. Each time we'd run, we'd go a different direction. Every time we'd get caught. Um, the worst that would happen back then uh, before Operation Streamline is that you'd spend some hours in the back of a Migra truck, right? Border Patrol truck, be a little hot. Um, and then they'd just take you right back to where you came from, back to Mexico. Now families are criminalized, thrown in, in for profit prisons. And obviously we saw what happened too with um, under the Trump administration with um, family separation. Um, so we tried many times, many times, just get, get, kept getting caught. And my tia finally, you know, met us in Nogales where we were and, and, and came up with the idea of us just walking through. Let's just walk through. So she taught my, my brother and I, I was seven, he was six, my mom, probably in our early 20s, mid 20s, how to say US citizen, right? Because you can walk through. 
And I remember we practiced over and over and over and at saying US citizen and they put us in our cutest clothing. I remember exactly what I was wearing. Um, they gave us a little juice cup and we walked in and you know looked at the agent and said a US citizen and I've been here ever since. Uh, we got through just fine, um, which is I think a story that you can dissect in so many different ways about what you look like, right? Um, and uh, yeah, so we settled in the south side of Tucson. Um, for a while, my brother and I had to stay with my tia. My mom had to go back to, to Mexico because she was undocumented. I don't think she could find a job. We were here for a while without my mother living as undocumented children in the south side of Tucson. Eventually, my brother was deported when he was around 25 years old after spending um, years in prison and then in detention center in Florence. Um, I just became a citizen in 2018 after all those years. My mother just became a citizen in 2020 after all these years. Um, so that is my border crossing story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it, you know, hearing, hearing that story and seeing the work that you're doing for uh, People's Defense Initiative, I think it, it becomes very apparent that you draw on your own lived experience to help frame some of the activist work that you're doing. And I'm wondering if that's something that's constant with you, uh, your, your own lived experience in mobilizing people to join what you're doing and, and join the efforts that you're focusing on. Uh, I'm thinking here of the sanctuary initiative that you were involved in extensively since the inception of People's Defense Initiative. But I'm wondering if you could reflect a bit about how your own lived experience uh, helps you as an activist. Uh, I mean, really, it, it frames the entire thing, right? Um, when I started organizing, I didn't start organizing because there was a word for it or because I had a, a, an idea one day or because I'd been in that kind of movement space because I hadn't, right? I was a single mother going to the U of A, working as a bartender, struggling like many of us. Um, and, uh, and then these issues kept popping up, right? My brother had been deported, I wanted him back. Um, the, the Black Lives Matter movement was just starting out. Um, there were all of these different things. There's student debt, there was, um, you know, the, the constant military, military presence here in Tucson. So, so all of that work frames everything that I've done. So my lived experience is really the entire basis of, of the work that I do. And it's the only lens that I, I've been able to use to, to get to where I, I think we need things to get to. So very Tucson, uh, I feel like my work is very based on, yes, my migrant experience, uh, but also my experience as a poor working class person in Tucson, right? The, the, inter, the intersections of all of that. And I think that's why so much of the work that I've done transcends so many of those lines is because I'm not just a migrant. I am also, you know, a downtown bartender that had a bunch of friends who were in the punk rock scene who were you know going through a lot of these same lived experiences of poverty of working 
your your ass off and getting nowhere um, and realizing that, you know, more and more that the systems aren't going to be there to save you. Um, but yeah, um, my, especially my work around sanctuary, uh, we founded PDI in 2018, April 2018. We just had our three-year anniversary. We filed the Sanctuary City Initiative uh, early December of 2018 to move it into the 2019 election. We founded this April 2018 and 2018 of June, June 13, 2018, as a matter of fact, leading those weeks leading up to that, we were fighting the child separation. We were really pushing, working super hard here. We founded a, a coalition called Be the Children Coalition, which PDI built the platform for. Um, we were really mobilizing the community to push our local elected officials in the county um, to take a stand against this. Uh, we were pushing the city, uh, DUSD, to be able to provide education to these children. Uh, we were doing a lot of things. We were fighting against Operation Stone Garden, right, which um, makes our police officers double as immigration agents basically. Uh, so we're doing a lot of work around that. We had this huge press conference one day on the 12th of June. Uh, I was up all night working on this. Uh, we had this big showing. We had many people show up to speak against Operation Stone Garden through the lens of the child separation, the family separation on the border. And that night, I went home and I slept. And in the morning, I woke up to the call that my brother, who'd been deported, had been murdered back in our home. And back in our hometown, um, which I think only just went to show the gravity of the situation and the life that migrants have. Where we can be working here and, and focusing on this particular issue while our family's being killed in a place where they didn't belong, right? Um, months later, we write the Sanctuary City Initiative, all of us in deep grief, and then we file it. And, and again, I became a US citizen just a month or two before my brother was killed. So when we filed the Sanctuary City Initiative in Tucson with my signature as a chair, in the first year that I was going to be able to vote on my very own Sanctuary City Initiative, again, like a lot of mixed emotions and, and also um, stories, just, just this convoluted, spiritual, yes, but also tragic story behind, I think, so many of us as migrants. Uh, and I thought that the Sanctuary City Initiative was in its own right a really interesting case study in the many possibilities of migrants in the United States. Mm -hmm. Good and bad. In, in some other uh, interviews that you've had that I've had the privilege of reading, you uh, in one you 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 allude to the the sanctuary movement in the 1970s and 80s as as being sort of a, a, a historical antecedent to this this notion of sanctuary uh, initiative and i'm wondering if, if that connection is something that you still keep very much a part of how you see sanctuary uh, uh the notion of sanctuary 
Definitely, uh, you know, all of the work that we do here in Tucson, those of us who are younger and PDI in particular, uh, is built up on decades of amazing work here in Tucson. And it's so much of that amazing work was led by the, the faith uh, leaders, by, by faith community here in Tucson, including the historical sanctuary efforts, right? So, um, I think of, you know, back in the 70s and even in the 60s when all of this was going on, when when our, uh, you know, immigration leaders and leaders, so, so, civil rights leaders here in Tucson um, were doing this work, they were called, and they did some amazing work, right? I mean, giving up their houses to, to, to pay for legal defense, uh, driving people in when, you know, like harboring migrants. I mean, all of, they put everything on the line uh, because they saw a need and they were called to help. When we did the Sanctuary City Initiative and, and we've been called all sorts of things because <laughs> of our, um, you know, way of, doing this, um, one of those things has been, you know, um, dreamers and, and really um, what else can you do but try your best to help in the way that you can. And when this was happening, you know, we, we'd come out of, I, in 2016, worked on electoral, electoral work. So I had worked on the minimum wage campaign of 2016 and in Arizona, which is historical, we passed the minimum wage, uh, gave every worker in Arizona the right to earn paid sick time, and took the wage from eight to twelve dollars an hour by 2020. Uh, but then, of course, Trump also won, so we won, but so did Trump, right? And 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 then I started organizing on a grassroots level with Lupe Tucson and with many other organizations here in town, where every day was a new nightmare because of the Trump administration, right? Nothing too incredibly new for us here at the borderland, 60 miles from the border and occupied, occupied autumn ter territory with border patrol everywhere. Nothing too new for us, but nonetheless, the, the gravity and the just how nasty and awful it was and how scared you just constantly were and you just didn't know why people hated you so much. So organizing, we were, we were pushing for sanctuary city policies. Why? Because messages mean everything. And our community, our undocumented community here, I have friends who were documented where DACA was being discussed and was being taken from them, who didn't know what their future held, who were, you know, many of them stronger than ever, but some of them just lost, suicidal. When, when your life is in the hands of these rich white men that you'll never meet, right? So we in, in, in Lupe knew that uh, solidarity meant everything. And we were pushing for sanctuary city policies and, and, and we just weren't winning anything, right? But we were changing the conversation. We were really changing the conversation here in Tucson, especially around sanctuary city and around policing 
and migration and what that meant. And we were building all these amazing structures with other community members to the rapid response network, which if you were undocumented, you, you're getting pulled over, you'd call and you'd, we'd show up with a bunch of people to support you, to make sure that you weren't turned in, to make sure that your rights were being respected. Um, so when we decided to do the Sanctuary City Initiative, it was built on all of that. It was built on not necessarily just us wanting to win this fight and having things in place to deter the application of SB 1070, which is what our, what our Sanctuary City Initiative was, but it was also about sending this large message to our undocumented community. And we said that repeatedly in this campaign. Yes, we are trying to protect undocumented community members what we care about, the message that we want to send isn't to Trump, it's not to the state ledge, it's not to the city council. The message that we were willing it down and held for was the message to our undocumented community member that they're not, they're, they're not expendable, that we love them and that we will fight with them tooth and nail against uh, inside and outside forces. Um, and, and in its spirit, I think it, it mirrored what what the folks did in, in the 60s and the 70s. Again, we weren't risking, you know, um, sometimes death like they were, um, but it wasn't an easy fight, right? Especially as a brown leader. I mean, I had death threats on a daily basis. Uh, my family did so too. It's, it's, it wasn't an easy fight, especially not in the climate that we had. It was a very violent campaign. Uh, violent in, in all sorts of different ways, but also a very beautiful campaign. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm thinking of, you know, you talk about the struggle and, and la lucha, the, the fight that you're in. And I'm wondering how much of that fight also has to be done with people who look like you, people who, who come from the same cultural or, or uh, social background and mm -hmm. in terms of the framing and, and the, the, the moral appeal to uh, those who are targets of SB 1070 or, you know, the racist policies that find mm -hmm. themselves working in, through, through uh, governmental agencies. I'm wondering how much of your, that's a part of also your struggle in, in communicating to your own people. Right. Uh, well, it's, it's always any like, you know, leader or organizer or any organization will tell you, if they're being honest with you, that this is the question that haunts you in your sleep, right? Uh, there is the notion that nothing for us without us. Uh, the people who are closest to the problem are the people who have the right solution to it. You need to have directly impacted people at the table, making decisions, building these with you, writing these with you. And then they're the ones who be the, should be the faces of this campaign. It has to be us. Um, that's tricky. <laughs> Why? One, these people are working. These people are working class folks. And some of these people don't want to be at the head, at the front of anything like this. Most undocumented, yes, undocumented and afraid, but most people are still afraid. They want to keep a low brow. They want to keep, you know. And then also, at least for us, 
as an organization that's very small, uh, but bare bones mostly just uh, runs through um, uh, volunteer work. You then ask yourself, how often do you ask from your community to do this work without being able to pay them? Mm. How can you put folks who are directly affected in leadership without one, tokenizing them, mm. two, taking their work and their lived experience for free. Um, and three, um, you know, without making it their job <laughs> when it maybe shouldn't be their job. Um, so it's super tricky, but, but I guess the answer to your question is, it's incredibly important. BDI believes that no work should be done unless we've got directly impacted people at the table making the decisions, getting paid for this work. Uh, but I will be the first to also admit that it, that, that line is incredibly, incredibly difficult, at least for those of us organizations that are grassroots who do not have the ability to pay for everything. Um, um, but we're working to change that and, and to put things into practice that'll help with that. Uh, if that makes sense to you. Mm -hmm. No, and, and looking at some of the, your, your core values as part of the mm -hmm. uh, People's Defense Initiative, one that stood out is the notion of radical inclusivity. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how, how much of how you framed that moral or um, value statement is, is a critique on what is going on now in, in society, that there is not radical, there is not inclusivity. There's in fact, the building of walls, the exclusion of people. And one particular intersection that I think would be very pertinent to the people that listen to, to this podcast has to do with the critique that your value, core value offers on faith, right? And in, 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 in not being inclusive. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if you could reflect on a bit on why that needed to be included in your statement? You know, radical inclusivity, uh, I believe when we were writing these core values was a reflection of a Black-led organization out of, youth organization out of, um, I'm sorry, out of New York. Like much of our PDI work that's anti-imperialist, that's um, anti-capitalist, that is about revolutionary work, it is based on Black revolutionary work, uh, as a side note. Um, so the idea of radical inclusivity had two kind of prongs to it. One of them was that in a lot of our spaces here, um, we kind of like the woke culture, and I hate to, you know, use that label, but um, maybe your listeners will understand this a little bit, that kind of that woke culture of uh, using um, a lot of terminology and um, that that doesn't land or resonate with working class people uh, that I, I've always believed actually um, betrayed our values because we say we want to represent working class poor people. We say we want to fight for 
X, Y, and Z, but our spaces don't actually reflect that because most of our people, the, our people, our community do, don't know what all of this academic terminology means or what it means to be problematic or they haven't been able to do the work to unlearn a lot of the problematic things that we come with. You know, me as a Mexican speaking, our faith, some of the, the structures, our faith, a lot of the sexism in our culture, a lot of the um, really kind of repressive way of being, even ableism. So another really important part for us in PDI is um, uh, disability justice and making sure that we've got disabled bodies at the table. Uh, and again, even that in our cultural way of being as Mexicanos, hard work pays off, if you don't work, you're this, estoy el otro, right? Like uh, all sorts of different ableist uh, factors to, 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 to our community. So, so we've always, the radical inclusivity to us has always been the idea of meeting our community where they are and being able to make everything tangible to them, grasp things at the root by, by talking with them in a way that they understand it going where they are and meeting them where they are and not having spaces that are exclusive of anybody who hasn't read revolutionary work or leftist uh, a theory um, or anything like that. Um, and also, you know, um, you know, that includes uh, us having to have conversations with um, faith leaders, tough conversations with, with faith leaders or, or folks who are, um, conflicted on some of these issues. Um, but really that part for us is about the nuance. It's about the large gray area and understanding that we betray the people we claim to want to, that one, we claim to represent and claim to want to help when our spaces aren't inclusive of not, not just people of color, not just queer people, uh, not, not just black people, but also all of those people who may not be where we are at, um, who may not have the ability to be there. Um, and I think also with the disability angle, we've really learned a lot of lessons in 2020 and have been able to make our kind of work uh, more accessible to more people who couldn't join before. So it's, it's exciting too in that sense. And I think that's what makes your story so powerful is that you, you are well, versed in theory as as reflected in, in a lot of the, the the language that you have and your core values but you you also again are rooted in that lived experience and and that in many ways can supersede uh, uh, theory in many ways which for working class people undocumented uh, people that they they carry with them a visceral and lived connection with suffering with trauma they, they, they they've mm -hmm. seen it they've felt it and they carry it and that in and of itself can often be much more powerful uh, as a way of connection than uh, the abstract and so I, I, I appreciate you you making that those connections in in those in your core values and that that brings to mind this uh, the notion of self-care as as you are giving of yourself, in, in so many ways in the political realm and as an activist, as a writer, um, and as a family member, as a mother, 
I'm wanting to ask if you have any source beyond the material, beyond the physical, that serves as a, a place for you to, to be refreshed, be encouraged, uh, renewed. You know, that's a really good question for me. Um, because it's a question that has been evolving for me personally. And I think um, it's also being reflected in the work in the space of PDI and the work that we've got to do ourselves too, to kind of have these spaces and have those spaces for people to recharge and feel safe and reflect where um, I, I'll be completely honest with you. I, you know, I'm, I've been an atheist for a long time, a very long time. And, um, and I've kind of really always grounded myself in material. And uh, I studied neuroscience and philosophy of mind in college and <laughs> always, I've always been this way. Um, I'm a, you know, very science-minded and, you know, um, but the last few years have really um, turned me towards the spiritual. Um, and I'm still a little wary of using the word spirituality, but I think that's the word to be used. Um, so for me, um, in the last year, especially in the last year, I've, I've, I've actually taken many steps back as in the work and in the spaces that I inhabit and in the way that I move through the world to reconnect uh, with the earth specifically. I am an avid hiker uh, now. Um, I love being out there and, and it makes me feel good and, and it offers me so much of what my soul has needed for so long. And, um, and I'm also learning to really take advantage of collective spaces where the sole purpose of that space is to really connect with others spiritually in different ways. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a process for me still. Um, I'm realizing that many of the things that I called not spiritual, we're actually always spiritual. And I've had a lot of people always say, you're actually extremely spiritual, you just don't know it. <laughs> um, and, you know, they were probably right this entire time. Um, but yeah, you know, again, newer stuff, uh, you know, I'm still working on that and also uh, working to integrate that into the work that PDI does um, as we move forward. Uh, we are going through a process right now of kind of restructuring and moving in a new direction, maybe, perhaps. We are asking ourselves the questions that I think all organizations need to ask, ask themselves when they get to a certain point in their work. Um, so we ourselves, I think, are having a, a, a spiritual evaluation of the work that we do as we speak. Um, so it's it's a it's a really good question. <laughs> no clear answer to it. Just know that the process is happening and and things are moving and spirituality and you know nature and 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 people and and the love that we have for each other is always centered at the. 
change. Yeah, and, and thank you for, for allowing yourself to explore a bit of, of that notion of spirituality, even though it's, it still doesn't fully capture what, what uh, I sense you, you're trying to convey. And also those elements of care are worked in to what I see as part of uh, people's defense initiative, that there is an appeal to a, a moral framework uh, that you have a strong uh, notion of uh, what it, you know what is desired that's liberation uh, justice these are values that translate not just in in physical uh, spaces and material spaces and political spaces but as i have witnessed uh, people who are coming seeking asylum uh, you know they they appeal to their faith and to their spirituality to find exactly what you're talking about, liberation, to, to obtain liberation, to obtain uh, justice. And so as you are still writing this narrative and it's, it's now entering into a transition, uh, I offer you simply just an encouragement as you um, have, have, have thought about uh, this, that, that question. And so I, I want to just end, if I could, with any, any last words uh, you would like to leave aspiring activists, brown-bodied br activists in the borderlands who are thinking about getting involved. Um, mm -hmm. What are some, of, some words of encouragement, words of mentoring that you would like to leave them with? You know, I am not a fan of the idea that everybody can do this, right? I'm a really not a fan of it um, because it's not true. If, if you're a person who wants to do more and, and feels it in your heart, but you can't because you're poor, because you're working too much, because at the end of the day, you're exhausted, I, you know, I am a firm believer in the fact that resistance alone is your existence. Being at home and um, loving your family is the most revolutionary thing that you can do, you know, I'm sorry. And it was a lesson that I had to learn myself that, that revolutionary work doesn't have to be outside of your home. And, um, now, if you are able-bodied and you have the means and you just haven't known where to plug in, my advice is always the same. Look for organizations in your area, see which one of them seems like you can plug into, and then start there. If you can't find anything, start with your friends and your family members. Uh, learn, read, learn, read. It's, it's one of the best things that you can do for yourself as an early activist. Now for everybody else, which are most of us, um, when you're barely keeping your head above the water, work on keeping your head above the water. Life is hard. It is very tough out there and we need our families and our communities to live, to, to, to survive, but then, then to also thrive. Um, so uh, I just encourage people to take care of themselves and to love themselves and to love their families and to love their neighbors. That's one of the most radical things that any of us can do. Well, thank you so much, uh, Saida, for all that you're doing. 
know that there are people in, in the audience who will be praying for you and I hope you don't mind that and, no, no. <laughs> and we, we uh, look forward to seeing the work that you're doing with People's Defense Initiative flourish and thrive and fulfill its, its mission of, of providing liberation and justice for those who are marginalized, uh, those who are oppressed. So thank you so much for your time. Of course, thank you so much for having me.